And welcome to Pints and Politics. Pints and Politics is a weekly discussion program of all things political coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio, CFFF in Peterborough, Ontario, 92.7 on your FM dial. My name is Bill Templeman. We've changed our format for the winter term. Instead of broadcasting weekly, we're on, we'll be on your radio every second Tuesday at 9. Our first show was on the 8th, and that was on the downtown arts community, and it just responds to gentrification. Then on the 22nd of January, we looked at Peterborough's housing crisis. Tonight, our political panel returns. Then our next show will be on February 19th, when we will look at gender in politics. In addition to the radio show, Pints and Politics is streamed live from the Trent Radio website. We also have a podcast at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. The podcast of tonight's show will be uploaded tomorrow by 6 p.m. And every Thursday, a small crew of local pundits gathers at the Garnet, Aylmer and Hunter here at the Garnet Pub, that is, here in Peterborough, 5 p.m. for an informal gathering. We're we talk about all things political. All are welcome. Please join us. We post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on the Cooperate Peterborough Facebook page. Joining me tonight in the studio is our politics panel, ably represented by a journalist and former mayor of Peterborough, Sylvia Sutherland, communications consultant and campaign manager, Lauren Hunter, musician and provincial NDP activist, Sean Conway, and playwright and math teacher, Tim Etherington. Welcome all. Now, uh, Donald Fraser was also going to, tonight, uh, going to join us tonight. Tonight, but he's been struck down by the Peterborough plague, so we we wish him a uh, no way to refer to council. Uh, no, 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 and wish him a speedy recovery. I, I gave him the family remedy of one tablespoon of raw ginger, two stable tablespoons of lemon juice, two ta- uh, two tablespoons of honey. Uh, fill up the cup with hot water and then add a, a shot of dark rum. So, if that doesn't do it, we'll see. We'll hope we hope he's back next time. So. For tonight, I'd like to spend the bulk of our time on the provincial and federal uh, situations, uh, as the federal campaign will be a big issue we're going to be dealing with on these panels for uh, certainly the rest of the year. Last fall and summer, we spent a lot of time on the municipal election. I interviewed 21 of the 27 candidates, invited all of them, and we had uh, four panel discussions on that election. We did two or three programs on the provincial election, and not much at all on the federal scene. So this panel, I'd like to balance things out a bit. Certainly let's touch on issues uh, like uh, the municipal issues, like the PDI PDI sale, uh, and uh, then move on to the ongoing adventures of Doug Ford, and of course the emerging federal election. I should also mention in passing that our debrief of the municipal election on October 23rd is now our most listened to podcast. 108 listens and counting. So there we go. Anyway... (laughs) The throngs applaud. Thank you, throngs. Maybe we should just rerun it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, on the municipal front, let's start off at the top. How is the new council working? Concerns, caveats, compliments? <laughs> there is silence. <laughs> I, I, they've moved rather quickly. Uh, you know, some of their some of their key uh, uh, promises. I was particularly heartened to see uh, them reinstitute the bike lanes on on Charlotte Street, or not reinstitute them, but but uh, uh, make that happen. You know, we have. We have a bizarre obsession in this town of our uh, of, of our, our of our parking and of our traffic. Yes, uh, and it does seem to animate people on a local level. And perhaps it's because I don't come from here; I come from larger cities. I've always been a bit of a head scratcher. There are times that there are traffic pinches around four or five in the afternoon, but I do find the issue around parking on Charlotte to be a, a little amusing. I actually was in a social media exchange with Taylor Clydesdale, and and I don't think he got the joke. He was <laughs> he was reporting. 
just honestly what um, had been brought up by the DBIA after council meeting and about how certain shop owners on Charlotte Street were saying they couldn't maybe stay in business that they lost their street parking. I also found that strange because the largest retail business on Charlotte Street is, is um, Wild Rock Outfitters, and I don't think they were the ones complaining. But I said to him, I, you know, I wrote to him and I said, well, here's my solution. Let's put a multi-level parking garage on King Street. Let's put another one between Simcoe and Hunter. And let's put a large level lot uh, between Simcoe and Charlotte. And let's put uh, pedestrian walkways fully accessible onto Charlotte Street. And Taylor's response was, well, that's not a bad idea, but where are we going to put them? <laughs> and and I, I issued a challenge and right. said, I anybody, anybody, I challenge anyone and any listener out there to find one commercial strip in any similar size city to Peterborough and Ontario that actually has more parking access than Charlotte. Yes. Um, but I think it does betray sort of many times how debates in the city have, have been locked into this into this reality, which doesn't actually exist. <laughs> During our, our housing panel a few weeks ago, parking came up, of course, and I, and I quipped that we could probably run an hour on parking in Peterborough <laughs> and have lots of vehement opinion. All right. Do you want another? Please. About, uh, <laughs> about, uh, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult uh, for a new council to take reins because they're taking over at the time the... Bu- they have to deal right away with the budget. Yes. Right. And I think I watched I watched the streaming of almost all. I missed one budget debate, but I, I got to get a life. But I, <laughs> I, I did. And, and, you know, you have these very, very real issues. And people are – which aren't accounted for in the budget. Mm-hmm. And there, were, there was, I think, $11 million in extra asks – this year for things such as affordable housing things such as getting people off the streets things such as the environment and there's no way that council they can try and there i think there are some imaginative solutions uh for example taking another look at the official plan which we're looking at anyway and trying to green it even more there was an attempt a number of years ago i know to green it i think there are opportunities now that we're reviewing it to build in uh you know further environmental uh protections in the official plan but i really feel for the council because the the issues are there, they're real, and they don't have the bucks to meet them. And uh, you know, it. Uh, and I think if we're looking at the start, it's gotten off to. It's been a little shaky, but it's not unique in that. And so we'll just wait and see. It's early days yet. And I think just to build on that, I mean, not only do you then have a, a new council, I mean, certainly some have worked together, but you've got new people and that changes the dynamic. And then they go automatically into this pressure cooker of a budget situation, which for the most part is already baked in by the time they walk in the door. And so their ability to make changes and implement yeah. some of those creative solutions in that first year are very limited. Uh, and so I look at other things mm. that are happening are not necessarily budget related, but, you know, the fact that the mayor went out and is participating in the Eastern Ontario Leadership Council, speaking to regional economic development, I think, is a really good step forward. And uh, I know the the nascent Environmental Advisory Committee is trying to get up off the ground as well. So there's some things, certainly, that was talked about in the campaign that are not necessarily budget-related that do seem to be picking up and moving forward. I think just to quickly uh, tag in, and like like, uh, Lauren has said, that most of of the budget is, is decided by the time they get in there, and it is a bit of a pressure cooker, has been said. I'd like to commend the current council on being able to deal as 
and and be as adaptive as they have been with the situation that they're dealing with. From a provincial perspective, I imagine that we're going to see a lot of downloading that's going to be happening and there's mm-hmm. going to be a stronger burden on not necessarily this budget, but the next three budgets that the city's going to have to deal with. And uh, things are going to get very real very quickly. And I've anytime I talk to uh, the mayor or any councillor, my my big clarion call is find revenue. You need to find more revenue. It's it's the most important thing that the city needs to do. And there wasn't a lot of that done, I would say, in the last eight years. And uh, the books are a bit of a mess. But all we have to do is move forward and fix the situation as it is. How would you find uh, – I have a column coming out on Friday regarding how you do things. We have to ask the question how. It where where would you look, Sean, to find that revenue? I, it's not a rhetorical question. No, yeah. Just, I, think, uh, I think the city has to look at, at uh, speculation costs. It has to look at what it costs to develop here. There are local developers who are looking to develop parts of, the, of lands that exist here. How much does the city get out of it? Is it a feasible amount? Can we do more for better? We know development is happening in similar-sized cities. Uh, and and we've got to look at that. I don't think that the tax increase that the current budget has is unreasonable. It's it's a bit high, but it's not unreasonable. There there are things that need to be looked at, and I think that revenue increasing revenue has to be the most important thing looking forward. Okay, PDI. How did we get to where we are now? What do we know, and what we don't know, and will we ever find out? <laughs> Well, we don't know what we don't know. (laughs) You're right. True. We do not know what we don't know. I think there are a lot of disappointed people out there. Indeed. Because they, and I'm not going to give away my Friday column, it deals, in fact, with with, with PDI. And there are a lot of people who voted for members of this council. Yes. Whom they believed, although the members had not exactly said we're promising we'll do something, but they believed they would do something about it. And it turns out... They either knew then, the ones who were sitting on council, or they didn't bother to ask because there was the implication as I listened to it that – and I thought, okay, fine, we've got this council in, good, people voted for them. There goes maybe the sale. No, no, the sale's yeah. not going anywhere unless the Ontario Energy Board yes. uh, does what they did in Aurelia. So, but I think you, you really urge people running for office, be careful what you promise Really, be careful. Does, what you promise. does the burden fall just on the people making the promises, or I mean, how open was that contract? Uh, because it, you know, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it is a contract. It's kind of like the sale of the armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia, for which Trudeau was getting flagellated <laughs> when it was, so you know, similar, yes. yeah, that was one of those contracts where if you try to break it, the penalties would be immense, and it wouldn't save any money. Were all the details of that contract known? So, in other words, what you're suggesting is that councillors knew that that it was impossible. Well, if they, they were- didn't know that, they had a responsibility to ask that, and they had a response, and the, and the, and they could have asked that before the report, before the other night, uh, before the election, and then perhaps the their approach to it might have been different. Okay, but does I the burden fall? I suspect what they were told the other night. I don't know. It was client. It, it was solicitor client privilege. Yeah. It was in caucus. But you, most people realize now. You know, if you belong to a body, you bear some personal responsibility financially. I suspect that may have played into the decision uh, that they weren't going to go any further, and and also what it was going to cost the city. Whatever was said in that caucus room the other night clearly oh. means that it's. 
But that yes. says, suggests to me that there was information that was brought to light that some of the councillors didn't know. We, we have to acknowledge the previous council administration was not exactly a paragon of transparency. And I don't remember <laughs> the mayor and his, and his allies uh, ever bringing up during the election about PDI that, sorry, uh, we wrote this contract in such a way that you can't get out of no, it. No, I'm sorry. Uh, if they didn't know, they had a responsibility to ask for that report to come down before the election, and, and the city had a responsibility to produce it before the election. Whatever happened in that room the other night should have happened before the election. I will say that we're, we're dealing in, in speculation yeah. and True. in uh, per- perception, right? Yes. So there, there are people who had a perception that this new council would be able to do those things, and we yes. are supposing what happened either before the election or during and after. There's a lot of missing information here that uh, I think comes into play. What my sure. what my intuition tells me is that it's a massive financial penalty. And going back to what I said before, is that revenue is going to be an issue for the city. They can't afford this if they want to do this, that, the other thing, any of these other promises. So maybe they're maybe that's it. But again, we're speculating. We don't really know. And I do agree with Sylvia that there that this information should have been should have been asked about but you know we've got to we've got to keep trudging forward through it it is what it is (laughs) and lastly before uh, i i leave the uh, municipal pool as it were um i have to ask about the parkway where are we the parkway i've never heard of it never heard of it well you've been in the yukon no wonder (laughs) where are we at is is it stumbling back to life like a zombie from the dead and we're going to get the southern end as leslie parnell wants or well i think i think a lot of people want the southern end it makes no sense not to complete it to park hill uh, I don't think in my lifetime or perhaps in anybody's lifetime you're going to see the northern section built. And the parkway is no is not what the parkway was originally planned to be in any exactly. event. But it, it absolutely, uh, uh, Leslie's right, and I think even my old friend uh, Jack Doris would agree that that, that one bit should, should be filled in. And it looks as if, well, again, it's speculation, but what we're hearing is that the this provincial government will allow them to piecemeal it to that extent to complete that uh, to complete it to Park Hill. It makes no, no it makes no sense as it sits right now. I don't think. Well, yeah, we, we sort of have, and I, I drive it every day. And you know, I, I it's my, my commute down to Durham and back, and and uh, yeah, I see the bottlenecks there at Charlotte and Monaghan, which is very close to my house. Um, and as people funnel that way, you know. I, I think at this point, I, I actually know people, and I've, I've, I was having a discussion with someone who's involved in, 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 in opposing it, and uh, they made some very good arguments about preserving the green space uh, that, that exists right now. I think I'm, I'm agreeing with you, though, Sylvia. I think it'd be very difficult at this point if the province gets a green light not to finish the southern section since Medical Drive was built. You know, it was it's a spur line right now that 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 really. Uh, logically would be connected to that to that one tangent as for the rest of it it's over uh, you know the only reason the parkway has been able to be resurrected like this frankenstein monster uh over the last several decades is because it was there in the official plan once it's taken out of the official plan it's a much more difficult thing to propose uh, i was just talking about this the other day and i, I brought out my uh, 1968 uh, transportation study from uh, metropolitan toronto which is one of my favorite books you all come by my living room look at it <laughs> and i was looking at the Crosstown Parkway, I was looking at the Spadina Expressway, and I was looking at Toronto sliced up into expressways as it was envisioned in the 1960s. And these were plans actually more recent than the Parkway plan. You know, there was a, there was a time when there were far fewer cars on the road. We didn't have any 
understanding of the pollution that co- uh, cars caused. And the parkway seemed like an idyllic solution. There was a time that suburbs seemed like a fantastic liberating idea, and the parkway originally came out of that era. The, uh, the city has been planned, though, as if the parkway existed. It has been planned since 1947 as if that road would be there. What I'm really interested in seeing, actually, is the result of all of the other transportation studies and transit studies that were ordered, um, seven or eight of them, I think. I'm really interested in seeing what comes of those, what we might be able to do to move people more efficiently around the city that doesn't involve the parkway, whatever Mm -hmm. section of it. And I would hope that everybody went down to the Peterborough Public Library today to give their two cents on the matter. Was uh, it was a hopping place when I was there, and it was very busy. Good. One of my frustrations, this is a personal thing with this, is that I don't know why we have such a limited view of Peterborough as a growing city, that we think that we only have one exit off the highway, and that everything has to sluice through from the south end right through the north end through the center of the city. If you live in the west end, if you live in Monaghan Ward, uh, you drive out to Highway 7 and go down to the, the 115 that way. If you live in East City, you take Television Road yeah. uh, down to the 115. Um, for those who are interested in the parkway and interested in traffic, take Cumberland, which is part of the traffic uh, through a fair. Take it all the way to Ends, which I believe is at Hilliard. If you look there, there is a hydro corridor, and you could cut diagonally from there across to what I believe is County Road 19, yes. and that takes you straight out to Highway 7. Yes. So why are we not working with the province and the federal government to uh, engage other exits off the 115? Lindsay has more exits accessing its city than Peterborough <laughs> does. It's much more efficient. To drive up Highway 7, cut across 19 yep. with one little patch, you can get straight onto Cumberland and be at the north end of the city a lot faster than a four-lane highway through the city, which will be congested beyond belief once it's built. Again, the original intention of the parkway was to move traffic through the city. It was to be an internal route. It was never meant initially to be a bypass, but times have changed. Yeah. And it will be right. interesting to see what the study is doing. Now, we must, uh, on to the provincial level, and I must ask, uh, what will it take to get Doug Ford to change his mind about anything? Money. <laughs> okay. We, we had a clue over Ford's Greenbelt uh, announcement. Apparently, when that first came out, you know, not apparently, there was a great hue and cry, but apparently what caused Ford to back off his plan, so I've been told, uh, to develop the Greenbelt was a lot of uproar from the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. Farmers, mm-hmm. his base. <laughs> it's, uh, it's that his that is to say, uh, and uh, he heard them. I, I think it unfair to characterize all members of the uh, Agriculture okay. Federation as conservatives. <laughs> I've, but uh, it, it, it's we knew that was coming. We knew that in in the last election when when conversations were leaked, where they had mused about talking about opening up the green belt, and we absolutely knew this was going to happen. And and I don't know what. I don't know what happens in the Premier's office as much as I think any of his MPPs do. No, and, and just what it is his voting base, rural voters are key voting constituent for the Conservatives, but it's not his uh, policy base. His policy base is the development industry. So he got caught basically in between two places. And someone, you know, Ford has pretty good political instincts, other people around him have better ones, realizing that you can't pick this fight with your voting base. 
But the reason he floated this idea initially is the same reason that Ontario Place is going to turn into a casino and a Ferris wheel, the same reason that the Hearn power plant was sold for a, a song, because Ford's real base, the people who provide him money, his friends, are the development industry. And it's it's uh, it's the Wild West for the development industry in Ontario right now. Now, we were talking before the program about the style of government, never mind the issues. Uh, is Do we have, in fact, a government by, by trial balloon? We float something up, see how the crowd reacts. If there's not too many boos, we let it stay. <laughs> I think that's a very good description of it, in, in fact, at, at the moment. Really? And no, it is by trial. I have the feeling it is by trial balloon. It's very difficult to. I'm having difficulty. For a, a doctrinaire party, I'm having difficulty finding. Where's the doctrine? <laughs> yes. It, 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 yeah, no, I. Uh, Sean had a good point earlier about what what this is actually doing, so you should make that, and then I've got another point. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the suggestion. Uh, so, uh, as as Bill said, that we are seeing a government by trial balloon, and we see one hand leading with uh, a bit of an overstep, and whether that's going to be elimination of full day kindergarten, if that's going to be the uh, uprooting of the green belt, or any of these other issues, we see then a soft other hand come in with a modest ish proposal where we have in the in the minds of people who have been inundated with news and uproar for three or four days thinking that all is lost and then we see a different piece of legislation will show up that backtracks where i believe the second piece that they're showing is the one that they wanted all along and i couldn't agree more and uh, i think that both that and uh, the example of the green belt and what happened there are both very instructive for progressives over the next three and a half years and i think that uh when progressives are rallying to to oppose some of these changes whether it be privatization of health care or cuts to education and osap and universities and everything else that we need to look for strategic allies that are going to align on an issue by issue basis uh, to be able to motivate that base that you know matters more to Doug Ford than, frankly, students who are concerned about uh, being able to pay for tuition. Uh, where's the natural alignment? Can they find another group that'll be concerned about that for another reason that happens to be part of that voting base that Doug cares so much about? That's what I think mm-hmm. we're going to have to look for and be really strategic about those alliances. So- I think uh, just getting back to the style of government, that's a, this is what the Ford government wants to do is to have constant crises within groups that are that are community development and building oriented where no one's going to really have the time to organize collectively against the government and and it, it I think that speaks to I had another point here and it was a very good one but I got I was waylaid by the instruction of the other point but, just what you said then, though, Sean. Remember, you're maybe too young, but remember Minister of Education Snowballin? Yep. Yes. And, and uh, you know, government by crisis was his yes. – uh, was his, uh, and he quite admitted it. You know, uh, yeah, you keep the keep the education in crisis all the time. I've Sean has remembered. I've Here. remembered it. <laughs> so uh, one, one thing that we have to remember uh, as progressive-minded progressive people, we have to remember what we want. And what we want, if we're going to talk about the green belt, we see the green belt as this island of of protected area. And two years ago, in my mind, it would, would be we need more of this, where now we're in the mentality where we have to save this. And we're being stopped from thinking of what we want. 
where we have to just hold everything down before it leaves the house. It is a good point. It is a really good point. I I think the most frightening thing about all of this is I I don't think this government is driven by ideology. And perhaps it's deeply cynical. I, I think they're driven by power and money. You know, I think I think I, and I, we laugh at that, yeah, yeah. but I, I, I think it, it verges on a kleptocracy. Uh, I'm not saying, for example, Dave Smith is that I don't know the man. He doesn't seem to be a terribly corrupt man, but you no, he really doesn't. He really I'm well, he saying doesn't. what I'm what I'm going to say, though, is that this is a terribly corrupt government and that Ford is clearly uh, lining up, the, you know, the heads of committees, the heads of the heads of, 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 of various government agencies with his friends. He's trying to put his buddy into the OPP because. It looks like they stole data from 407. I don't know. I got a. I got calls from the PC party. I've never been a member, but I. I am a person who uses the 407. And this is actually very frightening because you want to. You want to make a, a cogent argument about something and say, well, this is why I think it's bad. But all we're going to get back in return is spin and deflection, as long as some of the people at the center of this government can line their pockets. And I think. I think we should think about why the government was elected in the first place. And I think it was more an anti-liberal, an anti-win vote than it was ever a pro-Ford vote. And uh, so the the actual electoral legitimacy, I mean, they won the election clearly, but I don't think they won it on the basis of their policies. They won it because people wanted to change. So uh, spinning back to some of the remarks we've, we've just heard, what can uh, progressives uh, learn about influencing this government? Uh, you know, I'm thinking of, well, I think the biggest uh, employers, if you lump them together in uh, Peterborough or Trent and Fleming combined, you know, that's, that's a terrific sector. And a lot of those students, particularly at Fleming, are not going to get enough money to attend next year. And... Full disclosure, I do some contract teaching out at Fleming. I've had people in my classes, I know by their essays, that, you know, this is a struggle to get here. And OSAP was a big part of it. That's going to hurt a lot. It, it is, but how will it be expressed? I, I, one of the things I, oh. I was teaching very recently to, to a group of uh, 17, 18-year-olds was a personal finance. I was doing a unit on that. And um, they had a, you know really good questions. It's something that actually animates teenagers quite a bit. And we go through budgeting, we go through mortgages and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things we got talking about was renting. So I, I had a project, won't get into the details, where you project about 10 years in the future, you're renting an apartment, they have to come up with a monthly budget, they have to pay attention to the details. A lot of questions about renting. And I started speaking to them saying, well, they wanted to know what their rights were. I said, well, it's really good. You know, there's a landlord. T-. And then I realized as I was saying it, that things were changing very quickly. <laughs> that, you know, I said, once you have a lease, it can only be raised, you know, a small amount. depends. And there was, oh, wait a minute, those caps are being lifted. And this is a place where I teach, which is very conservative. Errol, too, is the MP. I bet if I took a survey of that room, at least half the people in that room would say really positive things about Doug Ford and Donald Trump. They were outraged. <laughs> they were absolutely outraged when they realized that there were no caps anymore on, on rental increases. Does that translate actually into voting for a liberal or an NDP? I don't know. But there's a real disconnect between the image and the kind of rhetoric around the leaders and what they're actually doing. Speaking of the Landlord-Tenant Act, about six hours, there was a pretty big change that came down the pipe, and they're removing the 11-day eviction notice to six days and allowing landlords now to use private bailiffs to remove tenants from buildings, where they've not been able to do since, which is horrifying. 
Yes. Picking up and holding on to all of these different pieces that are happening at the same time is going to be really challenging, I think, uh, especially as Sean pointed out, you know, not just trying to hold the fort, but trying to actually make progressive uh, changes and broaden influence in Ontario. So this is... Now, Tim, one of someone mentioned, and it could have been you, that there's an old line in conservative uh, neoliberal ideology that says once you get into power... Keep the changes coming. So keep people off balance. You know, the whole first hundred day strategy and then keep laying it on them. And I think that goes back to Reagan. Yeah, I I don't I don't know if I, I, I said that, but uh, certainly that's not a traditional conservative value, but it certainly is the modern neoconservatism. It, it, it is possible. Uh, there was a poll that came out. I think it was Nanos. Maybe it was Main Street that said already 51 percent of the the. Um, the Ontario population disapproves of Doug Ford. Nanos. I thought, Nanos, thank you. I thought, mm. oh, candy, this is awesome. I'll look more at the poll. And then they said, if the election were held today, who would you vote for? The Conservatives would have won. You know, it, it, times have changed a great deal, clearly. But the most, uh, certainly within the lifetime of someone as old as I am, and I'm nearly 80, the most successful political dynasty in this province and almost anywhere was a progressive, progressive conservative dynasty that began with George Drew and ended, I guess, with Ernie Eves. But uh, it, uh, you know, and they were, they were pragmatic. They did not, there wasn't constant change. You, you know, and whether or not that style of politics, which, say, was non-doctrinaire, was pragmatic, which dealt with issues as they came. I remember my husband once challenging Stephen Lewis, who then was a young student at the University of Toronto and very active in the NDP, and saying, well, tell me what you would do differently that Bill Davis isn't doing right now. And it was a tough answer, you know, for him to find. And uh, I'm just wondering if this idea that's been floated that, you know, you have to you have to keep people off off guard all the time. I'm I'm wondering if perhaps another approach, the old approach. Wow, an old lady can dream. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Okay, I I think people are. Unfortunately, yes, think, think, things have changed, and 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 while you may Thank have a you very much and, and, no, but while while you have, may have a few years of me, I'm also not a young man. So, um, I, I am accepting that what worked, that the politics that we grew up with, and the sort of predictability and the, the sort of gradual change is is over, and we are in a different world right now. It's being driven by a lot of different channels and ways that a lot of us old political hands don't fully understand. Hey, look yeah. at the look at the rise of the alt right. Uh, largely came out of uh, online porn and gaming, you know, yes. and that's where that community w- was originally put together. And so what access do us political operatives have in any of that and understand any of that? Um, however, we are starting to see a generation much younger than I who are taking on these new ways of doing politics and putting forward ideas that, that actually have a majority support and being able to do something with it. I sh- I must interrupt here for just a moment. You're listening to Pints and Politics on Trent Radio CFFF in Peterborough. Uh, we're on every second Tuesday from 9 to 10, 92.7 FM. Now, so back to Doug Ford. What are the takeaways for moving forward in order to, as Sean said... Hold the land we've got as opposed to conquer new new territory. Well, I think that as much as we're not seeing a typical style of governance 
from Queens Park right now. There are certain things moving forward that I think progressives can look forward to. I know that the county of Peterborough uh, just recently was approved funding. I believe it was $1.5 million for a transportation pilot. Uh, for reapproved. A, reapproved. Thank you. <laughs> well, let's re-approved. be clear where that funding started from. Uh, the previous government. Thank you very much. Well, <laughs> thank you, Lauren. Anyways. <laughs> um, I, I have my own qualms about how that ended up uh, there. But... That it's a great it's a great project, and the fact that if we can make a sound economic argument for it really not costing the government anything in the long run, things can happen. And that's this is a perfect case of that, and specifically when dealing with things like rural development, economic development out in the county, things like that. Those are really solid places for progressives to look at, and you know, especially for for myself thinking of how vital that service will be. Having a bus running from Curve Lake and linking up to go is is paramount. And it makes so much good sense. A stop in Lakefield, a stop in Peterborough, links to the go. That's absolutely something that needs to be there. And those are the sort of battles with transportation and infrastructure that, that are going to be need to be to be done. And I think it's that that economic argument, right? So, so maybe there isn't a, a dogma necessarily or a particular ideology, but we like think that we know where the conservatives are going to land. So, taking whatever it might be the progressive issue of the day and talking about it in that economic yeah. way, and again finding those stakeholders, those folks who voted for Doug Ford and trying to connect it to his voting base, however that looks, I think that will be where we might have better chances of success. I think that just to quickly add a, add, a, add a note, I would look at this as a reconciliation effort where they're looking at it from an economic development. And, and, right. and not always through the clear lens of economics. You know, you look at the you look at all the ridiculous rhetoric around the carbon tax and how that's going to dominate next federal election. And you look at some of the actions of the Ford government ripping out charging stations, which were already paid for and canceling all of these green contracts. I drive through the country quite a bit and all these Ford voters have solar panels on their farms because it's economically <laughs> beneficial and they were heavily subsidized by the previous liberal government. Yet they will, you know, clickbait rebel media stuff about uh, carbon tax and talk right. about these horrible people, you know, so there it is a little frustrating at times because voting decisions are really unfortunately not made unfortunately on, on logical arguments they are made on impressions there's one issue and we should, we won't get into it here but i just like to say i think peterborough in this area dodged a bullet because the 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 harrisites are on and that's really what they are it, it, you know are on their amalgamation kick again yeah and, uh, you know, my base, my, my grew up in Simcoe County in the southern shore of Georgian Bay. Okay. And, uh, and they're looking at Simcoe and, and mm-hmm. Norfolk and a lot of other, and these forced amalgamations, we, we could have a whole show on that, but they yes. don't, they don't work economically. They're done for the wrong reasons. But it just missed us. <laughs> so far. So, so far. far. All right. So we far. must, we must segue onto the federal scene. So what has emerged so far in this election campaign? And, w- I know the writ hasn't been dropped, but we're in one, uh, that either attracts praise, surprise, or condemnation. Now, we know Justin Trudeau will be leading the campaign for the Liberals. We're reasonably sure that uh, uh, Maxine Bernier will uh, be leading the campaign for the PPC. 
How is Max doing, by the way? Is, is he going to run anyone locally? Uh, who? Does anyone care? Dino, and, Dino Mastro. Dino, thank you. No, you heard it here Dino first. Mastro. If he's out there, Dean, if you're out there, <laughs> jump on the, the bus. Run for the People's Party. That's right. The, he wants back in. His, his time in the penalty box is over. Right now. But what about the Conservatives and their leader? Any hints of self-destruction regarding their leadership? What about the NDP? Given that Jagmeet Singh will run against a well-known local Liberal candidate out in Burnaby South... Is he sure to win? And if not, will the NDP have a leadership change? How electable is uh, I think It's safe to say that the Conservatives will not have a leadership change between now and the election. I think Scheer is going to be is going to lead the Conservatives okay. into into the next election. All things being equal, um, Singh the Singh probably stands a pretty good chance given the sort of the. The, the the mess up the liberals have out in that riding. And oh, with the candidate who had to step down? Yeah, the, and it's uh, very hard, I think, to yeah. play catch-up at this point, or those very popular candidates they're running, and who knows, but I think I think he may be, with all due respect to those of voting that persuasion, I think he may be dead in the wall. I think he has a long way to go to gain any ground, right. frankly. And uh, the best thing that's one of the best things that's happened for Trudeau and for the Liberals, you know, life is not quite as rosy as it once was, perhaps, is the fact that you have Andrew Scheer as a leader and you have Maxima there, uh, you know, pulling away some votes. Right now, I would say if I was betting, and I'm not a betting person on elections, I know better, <laughs> I would say that uh, that Liberals stand a pretty chance of coming back with the majority. But I that's right now. Just Lord. on uh, on Mr. Shear, I, I agree he's going to be their leader. But I do think I, I've, there are rumblings of dissatisfaction, big ones, yeah. uh, with him and the way he's governing the party yeah. and the issues they're choosing to focus on in, in question period and their strategy. And they keep um, you know getting caught doing things and having to backtrack. And so there's there's certainly some bumps along the yeah. way. And I think the person who stands to benefit from that is Maxime Bernier. Uh, so that really to me is. Kind Kind of the wild card. Uh, yeah, and in they this have election. no a chance of getting rid of him now, between now and the election. I, I don't think they will. I, I think the, yeah. he's probably got enough support in the party to keep going, and I think they probably don't wants. want to become a sideshow. Yeah. Um, but certainly, I, I don't know that it's inspiring leadership uh, to the base right but now. But look at how quickly Patrick Bowne was taken to the back alley and dispatched. So there is that example. If you game out Maxim Bernier, it's not that he's going to be a factor winning seats. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I, I don't know enough down on the ground. Maybe he might pick up one in Quebec, his own riding or something, but it's it's how all the tumblers fall with a weakened NDP and with the People's Party, which does have pretty strong support in various pockets in Quebec, those conservative parts of Quebec, like around Quebec City, for example. The NDP had shown particularly the legacy of Jack Layton and shown a lot of strength mm-hmm. in Quebec, and they lost a lot of seats to Trudeau last time. With a weakened leadership this time, without a Quebecois leader, uh, with the People's Party stealing conservative votes, if the Liberals, who are going to lose you know, their few seats in Alberta and the Prairies, they're, they're going to lose seats in B.C., if their majority, I think, is going to run through gaining more seats in Quebec because of those other couple of parties and how that geometry plays out. Yeah, it's not the number of seats that Maxime Bernier will win, it's the number of votes he'll take. And and the shift in the conversation, right? So he is forcing Andrew Scheer to defend his right flank, and that is having an effect on the things that they're going to talk about. I mean, the carbon tax, for sure, is nothing new, but that'll have an effect, uh, and I think it'll force him to tack further to the right when maybe he wanted to Stick more to the center. Uh, I'll stick up for the NDP a little bit. <laughs> oh, Sean, I'm surprised. <laughs> Good party boy. 
So I, I think that uh, a lot of the media has sort of given Jigmeet a bad rap uh, over the last couple of months, and he's he's took he's taken some bad hits. Uh, but I think as soon as as soon as we win Burnaby South, which it's looking like we're going to do, you know, uh, I have no doubt in my mind that he's going to going to take that seat. And uh, when he does, I think Canadians will have a chance to see him in the house. And I think that will quickly dispel any rumors. And we'll see caucus unity there. We'll see people coming out. And I think we can turn it around. You think there's enough time for you to turn for you to turn it around, Sean? And how much impact do you really think, or do you think the performance in the House really has on on how voters on their on their decision whether they're going to support a party or not? Well, I think there's there's a lot of traditional support for the party across Canada, and I think we if we see the the conversation shift from what the leader is lacking to what the leader can bring, and what way we can steer the conversation into things that most progressives that I know who are dissatisfied with the Trudeau government, who voted for the Trudeau government in 2015, if they see a reinvigorated and solidified left wing, they're going to support that. And I think that that can translate very quickly, uh, and especially if it uh, it's going to make some big news when he gets into the House because he's been... Uh, Without a seat for two and a half years, so getting him in the house should be a big news day. I want to underline. <laughs> I want to underline a little bit of what Sean said. I, I'm not a party person. I'm more of a swinger. But there are two things that, that Sean brought up. I think I do think the odds are, are against the NDP right now. But you do bring up two points. Jagmeet Singh is still an unknown quality, a quantity, and he actually uh, speaks very well. He has a very good presence. There is. You know, as a sort of new thing on the political scene, there is an opening. It's really up to the people in, in the NDP and how, how good their media people are if they can promote that. The other thing is, is Trudeau's left flank is is is, is weak. Open. It's it, it is wide open. We can have a whole conversation as to how fair that is. I think in some cases it, it it's legitimate. In some cases, I I think it's a little over the top. But there's no doubt there's political ground to be made on the left if the NDP and we're talking about a fall election. So it certainly it is possible. So I'd like to say that if we if we do see a boost on the left, we're also going to see the converse with the People's Party on the right. <laughs> if the People's Party right now, I think they're polling from Main Street and 338, have them about 11.5% uh, across the board for the People's Party. That's going to come right out of the Conservatives. And there's going to be a lot of ridings where the Conservatives are neck and neck. And there's a lot of ridings which are toss-ups, which... I think we'll probably stay liberal. If there was a People's Party provincially, we'd be talking to the MPP right now. I would just say I think uh, the NDP numbers have only up to go, right? Uh, they're, they're pretty much at their the, the lowest. Uh, I think anyone's seen them in recent memory. And uh, they'll, they will necessarily go up from here. I do think Jagmeet will probably win that seat. And... Uh, It'll, I think, coming back to Sylvia's question, it'll be interesting to see whether that performance in the House really does change things, because as we know, Tom Mulcair was an excellent performer in the House of Commons, and that didn't quite translate. Uh, and I do think, if I was going to provide some advice, that uh, convincing Mr. Mulcair that in his new job as a pundit, perhaps he should take the knives out of Jagmeet's back a little bit more, that might be helpful. But uh, these things will all be a wash, I'm sure, by the time we get to October. Yeah, and in the in the mix, I read uh, was it yesterday that uh, the Green Party is eclipsing all their former fundraising efforts. Fundraising efforts, they're really doing quite well. So, 
Even Where a lemonade th- stand has its good days. <laughs> <laughs> not, not this winter, young man. <laughs> uh, and uh, on another point, uh, recent press. In fact, it was the article I sent out with the uh, the um, tweets and Facebook posts promoting this show uh, today. Uh, that there was an article by uh, John Ibbotson in the Globe and Mail uh, equating the conservative and liberal policies on the major issues of the day. And the gist of his article was, it's going to be hard to hack, or is it really worth hacking both parties because their policies are so similar? And it was, a, it was sort of an astonishing, provoking article. Did, did you see? Oh, I'm really, I'm ready to jump in here because that article that. was particularly about their foreign policies and not right. their domestic policies, where I think okay. you see a significant gap, especially between the Liberal Party of this day and age under Trudeau, whereas I think there's definite arguments to be made that previous Liberal governments were further to the centre, absolutely. Um, but that was foreign policy, and in fact, by the time you got to the end of the article, Ibbotson was saying, actually, this might not be such a bad thing, uh, because in other countries where we've seen the two Two major parties have such uh, a, a cleavage between them in terms of their foreign policy that can be really disruptive on the foreign stage, uh, and so maybe this isn't so bad after all. Is it? A, is it a? I, I shouldn't name a party. I, I can't think of to which party she be, she belongs. But the member from Gatineau. We can all be grateful in a way for uh, for our representation, whether you agree or disagree with them here, because the member from Gatineau apparently believes the earth is flat. Uh, Abs- this is the deputy mayor of Gatineau. I thought she was a member. Oh, I think she that's the deputy mayor because the mayor has just called on her to be removed oh, was from it? that Okay, seat. I yes. take one. Oh, yes. We are lucky here with yes, our deputy yes. mayors. So, uh, yes, yes, yes. Some disparaging comments about uh, Islamophobia right. and, and believes that the earth okay, is flat. Okay, I take yes. it then. Is it, it okay. Rousseau who's a... Is that who's the member from Gatineau? No, no. it's the deputy no, mayor. Mc- no, but okay, shall we? Now to bring this to our own writing, I am going to engage in the ultimate vanity of reading something I wrote about strategic voting last year, and I want to read a bit of it. <laughs> you read in this space last year? <laughs> uh, no, it was no, no. This, I'm not recycling for our long-suffering listeners, but uh, it is the first time I've done this. So th- th- this is an article that was in the Examiner, and it was about the results of the provincial vote, but the gist of it was uh, the NDP finished just behind the Conservatives by 2,194 votes, and there was some stuff that went on uh, in the campaign. A letter was sent out from uh, the Liberal office that Jeff Little signed. One thing is absolutely clear here in Peterborough, that the race is going to be tight. Our riding is a race between the Liberals and Conservatives. We have the numbers sort of thing. Uh, well, it turns out the either don't exist or or were never explained, is this going to have an impact on strategic voting? So where does this leave us in Peterborough-Quartha? Is strategic voting dead? Perhaps. Strategic voting in our riding usually means vote liberal. On June 7th, the shoe had to go on the other foot. Not enough liberal and green voters tried to put it on. When the call goes out from the liberals in the fall of 2019 to rally around the Monsef Trudeau ticket to defeat Skinner Shear, how many strategic voters will stand up to be counted? Or is this the wrong question? Is strategic voting not only a wrong game plan, but by placing our faith in elections, are we really playing the wrong game? Are the major issues of our day, economic disparity, job losses due to technology, resource depletion, climate change, really going to be resolved by governments or are they going to be resolved by self-organizing citizens from across the political spectrum? 
etc. We just got over this. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, haven't we, like, we've worked on this Now, um, now this, this actually will... This but it's coming back again. Now, this is going to... I, I think I have two or three points that I'd like to make quickly. So, first of all, uh, coming back to... Uh, we've got to be fighting for something more than right. fighting for just what we have. Right now, we're in a situation where we have a majority liberal government and... For the majority of Canadians, that's okay. And for me, I'm not. I'm not too happy with it. But that's that's because I, I'm not a. I'm not a huge friend of the liberal brand. And I know it's what? shocking. <laughs> it's shocking. <laughs> now, uh, going back to, I. Some of my best friends are liberals. <laughs> All right. Now, um, uh, what we what we Bob have Dylan to, is in the background here. Yes. What we what we have to do is is think about is is the nature of strategic voting really going to be viable in this election? Is strategic voting uh, only ever to keep conservatives out, or is it actually used to keep liberals in power? Well. You know, I organized the strategic voting in the last election and got investigated by Elections Canada, by the way. They kind of flew under the radar. Yeah, there was a complaint lodged by conservative forces against Lead Now for foreign money in the elections. And out of the blue, I was called by Elections Canada. They wanted to know where the money came from for the poll lately. It was all very friendly. Actually, the people called me from Elections Canada. The investigators were really quite nice. And there was nothing untoward. So we had a couple conversations and, and, and did it from that. But But what Sean said right at the end is true. It's... You know, it's easier to arrange strategic voting when you're voting against something, when you're trying to vote yes. for change. It, it's not easy to do when you're trying to preserve a, a, a party in power. I don't think, unless someone else wants to step up and do it, there's going to be an organized strategic vote uh, campaign in the next election. I, I don't think it's going to happen. But we begin with one understanding, and I've been banging my head against the wall for 10 years about this. just this reality, is that the majority of voters in uh, Peterborough, our center or center-left. There's a progressive majority. Um, we saw that in the last uh, provincial election when Sean won the city. We certainly saw it in the municipal election. Of course, there's other factors. Mm-hmm. But it is the overlapping yet significant differences between the NDP and the Liberals that allow people like Doug Ford to get elected. And right. I, I, I don't think that's any massive insight, but how you redress that is something I've been working for for 10 years. And I, I don't see a landscape that is going to change rapidly in the next six months, unfortunately. Maybe a little bit of a nihilist here and not uh, to undo the good work that you've done, I think, about having that conversation. Um, but, you know, those efforts at the end of the Leal campaign didn't move the dial at all. Uh, and that vote that came out for him was exactly what was polled and no more and no less. And so even a pitch to strategic voting in that capacity had had no impact. I think that people in this ride, I think this is a bellwether riding for a reason. I think that people look to the broader trends. They look to see what's happening. Who's going to be the government at Queen's Park? Who's going to be in power in Ottawa? And they make their decision. The, the swinging group, I mean, there's certainly each has a core constituency here, but there's mm-hmm. that big group that moves back and forth between the Liberals, the Progressives, yep. Liberals yep. and the New Democrats, and they're going to go where, uh, you know, Main Street and Nanos and everybody else who's talking about what's happening in Ottawa and in Queen's Park is telling them to go. Uh, and so I, I don't know what the impact of local campaigns are, and that was actually yeah. very sad for me. Walking away from the provincial election uh, was just sort of disheartening to think that maybe we don't have all that big of an impact in the end. <laughs> no, you were not, but I think that the, the, one of the things that's changed over the years 
uh, in the local writing and perhaps elsewhere, is the demise of the progressive conservative party. And and that has, yes. has changed the, yes. the the color of politics in Peterborough. Yes. Yes. In fact. Yes. Now, um, there have been rumblings that climate change is actually going to be an election issue this time. What do we think? Uh, or it will be sa- or will it be safely sidelined by yet again? Will immigration be a big issue? Ask someone under thirty. Ah. As I, didn't, I don't mean to be glib about that. No. 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 I mean. As we are lacking person. that in the studio, what, what's your guess? You live with someone <laughs> well, under 30. <laughs> I'm 28. Yeah. Was, oh, that, 20, I, I, sorry. I was, sorry. I take it back. I was, this was a soft pass right on the tape to Sean. Pass right but, on the tape. But, but the point to leave to Sean is that we talk about this. Is climate change going to be a big deal? You talk to people under 40, under 30, and it is a really big deal. It's, it's, it's axiomatic. It's just one of these things that's accepted. Uh, by a large majority of people that age. I have news for you. It's also a big deal for people over 30. And it's a big deal for people over 60 and 70 and 80 even. Perhaps not as big a deal, but they have grandchildren. And they, and they, yes. and they also, uh, you know, don't discount the fact they too can look to the future. What they hope is the future. Absolutely. The, the biggest issue for all voters should be climate breakdown and if you talk to people that are around my age and younger because uh, people that uh, were were babies when i was uh you know they're they're voting now and uh climate change climate breakdown uh natural resource extraction are big problems with young people and we're seeing it Across the board, everyone wants to talk about the environment. They want to talk about what's the future of the manufacturing base. What does labor look like? Precarity, uh, labor standards, health care all ties in to the environment. So if we can't – too many people talk willy-nilly about climate change, about the environment, without actually looking at the implications of what it means to the job force. We absolutely cannot have any new oil and gas development in Canada. Absolutely right. not. But where are people going to get jobs? That's what we need to start talking about. We need to start having a conversation about full employment. Right. Now, other issues, uh, just quickly. And immigration will be a big issue. Immigration will, will be. be. And will Aboriginal relations, particularly with regard to pipeline construction, it be It never issue? will be, Bill. It will never be a big it's issue. It's never going to be a big but issue. But even after those... As an Indigenous man, it's never been a big issue. No, but even after those videos of the RCMP going into BC... We've been seeing and, these videos on YouTube, on our Facebooks for 20 years. You know, 15 years since Facebook's been around, you know, I've been seeing, you know, people of my uh, of my ilk being beaten and battered by the government all my life. When people talk about the bad objects of the Harris years, they don't talk about Dudley George and April Wash. They talk about Walkerton. True. No, no. True. I don't think anyone's going to really take it seriously. Yeah. And and the issue is that uh, at most First Nations activism is going to be centered around opposing natural resource extraction, and it's going to come down to sovereignty and who gets to call the shots. And on that bleak note, 
Sylvia Sutherland, Lauren Hunter, Sean Conway, and Tim Etherington, thank you so much for coming by. And uh, just to sign off, we are on in two weeks. This has been our third program of 2019. Please join us every second Tuesday at 9, Trent Radio, 92.7 FM. And if you miss us in the radio, you can catch the podcast the next day. Uh, it'll be out on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, until Tuesday in two weeks, that would be February 19th, when we tackle the issue of gender and politics. Uh, this is Bill Templeman.